Ladies and gentlemen, my people, boy, 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 is he the past couple of days on another level, but we're here. And it was Public Enemies Chuck D, bring the noise. Fifth End Podcast Network, I'm Charlie Taylor, and this is What's Good. Welcome back ladies and gentlemen, hope you've all had a good week in the circumstances, and that's true on this week, I tell you, fuck me bro, oh, bro. whole of Western Europe just fucking heat wave on heat waves man, and I, honestly, I don't think we even got the b- fullest brunt of it, so, you know, the UK had uh, two days, uh, specifically, of, um, 40 degree weather uh, for me it was around 35 ish right but in the 35 some full 40 degrees um it was uh, officially clocked in heathrow airport uh 40 degrees and um on top of that we had a ton of um you know fires about uh burnt like a there was like a daycare that got rinsed um well, rinsed is probably the wrongest word possible, uh but you know they got they, they got a chart and um a couple of homes as well tons of just fire um brigade uh, like state of emergencies kind of thing going on just alerts and stuff uh everywhere especially for our london um and uh, for other counties as well but um even with that said man i still don't think we got even the brunt of it um portugal got you know just uh, had like 45 degrees somewhere uh spain france had it as well so yeah man the whole of western europe just got um completely just uh, just drilled by a heat um, and uh, I went to walk the dog today for like, the first time in a while um, and um, it's just weird how yellow dry everything is just everything looks dry all the grass looks dry and it's actually crazy um, thinking about it um, but yeah man this is this is the reality now boys this is, this is the reality Best, but believe you know. What I mean, it's gonna ha- it's gonna keep going down. Um, maybe, maybe you know, it's gonna come down probably yearly now, uh, and it'll probably be longer than two days. And uh, you know, just I don't know, man. I don't know how I'm gonna work because um, I did the bare minimum on Monday, Tuesday. Trust me on that. I just uh, spent my time catching up on the athletics. Um, so World Athletics Championships have been going down. And uh, it's just I've just been thoroughly enjoying that, to be honest. That's um, pretty much it. And past that, you know, I did a bit of work once the once the heat died down a little bit. You know, what I mean, around and came around uh, once it was below thirty, I felt like I could do things. Um, but yeah, man, it was just a lot. It was, it was just um, it was just yeah, it was that was a lot. Um, but yeah, man. Apart from that, you know, can't complain. I guess I <laughs> just. Paid off my phone bill, um, you know, just uh, been paying off for my phone for a while, so finally finished that, um, uh, and uh, yeah, it's good, it's good, so, you know, just get one more dip off the off the board, um, and that just uh, free things up for uh, stuff, um, I have booked a ton of shows for myself, um, for from August onwards, uh, Hemper Sativa, Apollo Brown, who's bringing like Sky Zoo, Big Poo, uh, fuck, who's the third one? Uh, Guilty Simpson, uh, seen all the, those four in one one night, and I was I got that for a bargain. That was an absolute bargain. I can't believe I was just, uh, that was less than twenty five quid. That was crazy. Um, Jizza, which I've which I've talked about before, you know that was like the show. That was the, that was like the last the last uh, no the first show um, that lockdown just killed for me. Um, it was right on the cusp of lockdown and it got cancelled. So I was like, damn and. It's finally coming in October, hopefully. Um, so that's uh, that's gonna be great. Seeing Rakim, y'all seeing Bay. I'm seeing three out and out legends of rap right now. It's crazy. Um, in the next few months, uh, Saber Capstad, uh, Makaya McCraven to finish off at the end of the year, November. I can't wait, man. And uh, I think I'm remember. I think I'm forgetting one, but yeah, it's just it's just outstanding, outstanding. Um, I think uh, the only one I'm missing right now is probably Lauren Vula. Um, I should see if she still has tickets about, but um, yeah, man. Apart from that, 
it's all good in the hood. I can't wait for the rest of the year. Got some stuff to look forward to, which is good. Um, yeah, and just uh, keeps me going, man. Just keeps me going. A lot of people, you know, um, everyone runs their own race. And uh, for me, the things that keep me going are, you know, just the potential of going to shows and doing stuff like that. Um, and, uh, you know, just, just having the ability to do so. Um, that's, that's, you know, I've, I've talked about that before of um, what you want in life. And, uh, you know, for me, it's just that kind of fulfillment, that level of fulfillment where I can have shows any time I like and uh, always have the opportunity to see the ISI love. Um, so, and uh, I'm seeing some just, I'm, I'm checking off some big boxes for myself this year. It's crazy. Um, I saw Roy Ayers, obviously, and that was that was one just, ugh, can't believe it, couldn't believe it. I'm, oh my gosh, crazy. Um, so, yeah, man, just stuff like that is absolutely outstanding to me. Outstanding to think about that I've seen these people and I'm going to see Ra Kim. I generally thought I would never, ever see Ra Kim, like, factory. I just never thought I'd see him um, for obvious reasons. So, um, well, well, for the reasons that you probably aren't aware of, um, he doesn't fly um, I saw a video where he said he doesn't fly and I was just like well I'm never going to see him then because <laughs> unless I go to the US and he just happens to do a show um, there are Lauren Fuller tickets I've just seen so um, yeah I might, might give that might have a look at that might have a look at that I think it's like a, the same oh wow it's right but it's the day before Rakim oh that'll be an interesting weekend wouldn't it Oof, that, might be, that might be fun with Thompson to look at but anyway let's get on to the show uh, uh, what we what do we have? Fucking <laughs> uh, politics, life, work, and society. Um, and I feel like there's a good um, mix, and uh, I feel like there's a good through line for all of this. And I think I've weaved it quite well. So let's see how it goes. Before we begin, email Twitter, Discord link, all that, all that, all that in the full show notes. Please go peep the article for yourself, give them a read, and support the writers that make this show possible. And with that said, let the beat drop, and let's get into the show. In a week where Cameron Smith wins the 150th Open, uh, so I, want, I wanted to watch that, but um, you know, the Athletics were could kind of took his tendency. Uh, UK faces two days or faced two days of uh, 35 to 40 degree heat. Uh, World Athletics Championships goes down. Uh, Sky News cancels third leadership debate, and uh, it's now down to two: Rishi Sunak versus Liz Truss, and. In my humble opinion, I believe it should be Rishi Sunak, not for any reasons that he's good or anything. But I feel like um, all of his uh, all of his issues are more front and center. I feel and uh, much easier for people and uh, for people that actually give a shit um, to see the issues with Rishi Sunak. Um, and lastly, health officials in Ghana have declared an outbreak of the highly infectious infectious Marburg virus, uh, which is apparently equivalent uh, or you know um, similar to uh, like an Ebola-like uh, virus. Um, so yeah, that's fun, fun, fun. Always, always, always looking for the new one. Always, always a new virus uh, coming out. Always a new virus dropping. Honey, wake up! New virus just dropped. Um, so let's talk. But 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 but, ladies and gentlemen, let's talk about something that I'm surprised I haven't talked about yet. I can't believe I have gone. How many episodes? What episode is this? 187? 187? Oh, I forgot to do it in the intro. 187 on an undercover car. Yeah, man, it's, it's, it's going down right now, right? And I can't believe this is 187 episodes and I haven't talked about whiteness yet. Or at least I haven't done it for a topic. Um, so we're going to do it for a topic. And it's gonna. And I feel like this is a good foundation for what else is going to come this episode. Um, you'll see you'll see what I mean uh, hopefully um, but yeah this is um, all about whiteness so this is going to be called this is called uh, whiteness is an invented concept that has been used as a tool of oppression um, this is by uh, via the conversation and it's by uh, it's uh, Megan Tinsley who is presidential fellow in ethnicity and inequalities uh, from University of Manchester and uh, yeah let's jump right in because um, I feel like this is an important um, I feel like if 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 this was the main thing we learned in schools, um, a whole lot of shit would be so much better, and it'll be easier to explain for shit like um, why I was so scared, honestly, so scared of the potential of Kemi Badnock being a uh, PM. 
Um, just just that alone scared the shit out of me because people don't get it. People don't get it. They see a black woman and that's fine, right? Get it, right? That's easy. That's easy. Black woman, right? Da da da. But it's the it's the whiteness sides of it that people don't clock, and it's so hard for people to wrap their heads around. So, hopefully this helps. Hopefully, um, someone out there learns about whiteness today um, through this episode. Um, and uh, yeah, let's jump right in. Whiteness is a modern colonial invention. It was devised in the 17th century and used to provide the logic for genocide and slavery. The first recorded mention of quote-unquote white people, historians concur, is in English playwright Thomas Middleton's 16, excuse me, 1613 play The Triumphs of Truth. Ever since the 17th century, people across the world from the Dominican Republic and Morocco excuse me, to India and New Zealand... They have been variously granted or denied rights on the basis of being deemed white or non-white. Whiteness thus has consistently entailed opposition, power and subjugation. Research shows that this theme of whiteness as power and unity has persisted even as the boundaries of whiteness have shifted. As European powers colonised various parts of the world, they implemented and refined racial categories. In colonial Barbados, 17th century labour codes described indentured Europeans as quote-unquote white and gave them more rights than enslaved Africans on that basis. This ensured that the two groups would not unite in rebellion against wealthy, against wealthy planters. As African-American studies expert Edward B. Rujima, Rujima, or Rugema, um, has argued, this also, quote, codified racial distinction as a tool of mastery, unquote and was replicated in Jamaica and South Carolina. Crucially, it hinged on the fact that enslaved black people had no legally recognised rights, whereas European-born white servants did. Slave status was for life, without recourse, and heritable. Uh, In other Caribbean and Latin American colonies, the term white gradually replaced the term Christian as the designation for European settlers. In Haiti, French colonial officials grouped people into an array of categories that conflated race and class. Grand, grand Blanc, Grand Blanc, Grand Blanc, that's how you say it, uh, Big Whites, Petit Blanc, uh, Little Whites, Free Coloreds and Slaves, with the overarching, uh, overarching distinction being between whites and non-whites. Spanish and Portuguese colonizers in Latin America, meanwhile, developed the intricate and rigid casta system, Uh, at the top of this caste-based hierarchy were Peninsular Spaniards, people from the Iberian Peninsula, and at the bottom, enslaved Africans. What has made whiteness such an enduringly powerful tool is its nonsense logic, as uh, writer Robert P. Baird uh, recently put it, how ill-defined it is as a label. It can and has been defined in whatever way best serves to consolidate power for the ruling group. Echoing the division between enslaved people and indentured servants centuries earlier, working class people in the 20th century were pitted against one another by appeals to whiteness. In his 1995 book, How the Irish Became White, American historian Noel Ignatiev Ignatiev, Ignatiev, uh, looks at 19th century Irish immigration to the US. He details how these working class newcomers emphasised their distance from black labourers, thereby laying claim to whiteness. As a uh, radical socialist, he questions why they effectively sided with the oppressor, white Americans, rather than with the oppressed, black and safe people. Quote, Imagine how history might have been different had the Irish the unskilled labour force of the North and the slaves the unskilled labour force of the South been unified. I hope that understanding why that didn't happen in the past might open up new possibilities next time, he later explained. However, as much as whiteness enables power, it also fuels anxiety. Because the category is at once ill-defined, but also bestows great power, people who find themselves in that category have consistently been at great pains to protect it. Historically and still today, in the minds of many of those who stand most to benefit from it, whiteness must be kept quote-unquote pure. Thus, colonial officials in the British Empire treated white settlers as citizens with rights, but indigenous and enslaved people as threats to be suppressed and controlled. For centuries, universities and schools across Europe formalised the notion of white supremacy 
through knowledge production and dissemination. The Swedish botanist Carl Linnaeus uh, taught that every living being could be categorized and classified into types. The German naturalist Johann Friedrich uh, Blumenbach uh, claimed that human beings were divided into five quote-unquote scientific races based on skull shape, with the Caucasian skull described as the quote, most handsome and becoming, unquote. <laughs> oh, I love phrenology. Um, in India, in the heyday of scientific racism, and, and, that, and that's a legit thing, by the way, scientific racism. Like that's a, that's a lot. That's a that's a lot to do with whiteness as well. Um, and anyways, it's a lot. Uh, phrenology, like I said, belt curve, all that shit. Uh, in India, uh, in the heyday of scientific racism, colonial scientists argued that in ethnicity and caste were physical attributes, assigning hierarchical hierarchical status and privileging proximity to whiteness. And as scientific racism became mainstream, whiteness was naturalized and framed as quote-unquote common sense for the gen- for generations of students. Even more sinister were the political and social programs that whiteness justified, eugenics for sterilization and genocide. In the 20th century, the humanities and social science too, uh, sciences too were agents of white supremacy. Sociology sought to explain modernity by universalizing the experiences of European and North American societies, while either depicting African and Asian societies as quote-unquote primitive or writing them out of history. This latter point is crucial. White people and white institutions have long centered their experiences. That's a key, that's a key term, by the way. Uh, centering and how you, how you see life. You know what I mean? It's centered in whiteness. My life, in some ways, is centered in whiteness, right? And I've been trying for years to try and chip, chip that away. Um, and it's very hard to do so. But anyway, carrying on. Centered their experiences, imagining them to be universal. Universalizing their experiences, in turn, has permitted white people to speak of themselves as individuals who are unmarked by race and racism. This stands in contrast to the way which non-black, non-white and black people are collectively othered and racialized, and it continues to have tangible and often terrible daily consequences. Universities and schools impose white-centric curriculums and uniform policies that discriminate against black pupils, officers over police black communities in the name of law and order. Authorities adultify black children, which leads to their being treated as criminals. In each case, whiteness enacts violence without being spoken. By remembering the history of whiteness, however, we might begin to address the legacies of empire and slavery. And that's the end of the article. And this is probably one of the most important articles I've put on here. I truly believe that. I think the I think whiteness, where if again, if people learned and understood what whiteness is, don't get it twisted, okay? It's the underlying root towards stuff like white supremacy. Okay, so when people when people like me and um, you know, like this, the the U.S. Um, uh, U.S. Uh, 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 people that have um, uh, U.S. African Americans that have uh, you know really put effort into trying to teach um, and enlighten people about centering uh, non-white people. You know, like the Nicole Hannah Joneses, like the Ibram X Kendys, right? Those like those people. The reason why uh, it's important to highlight whiteness is because it's the root of all of this it i i think i believe that is the case when you teach if you if we taught and this is where this is where you know the the you know the 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 reactionaries get this wrong okay so you know obviously um uh throughout last year especially um especially after george floyd and everything um in 2020 um it was very important for me personally to preach the fact that education is the most important thing um excuse sorry about the ringing uh the most important thing uh next to obviously you know awareness of climate change and all that kind of shit for you for use i'm talking about use here the most important thing in society and i guess socially for them to learn is whiteness i truly believe that 
And if we did it correctly, if we did it in a way that was compassionate, right? That was with compassion and was as and hasn't and isn't in the and can't be contained by the reactionaries to say, "Look, they want our children, they want our white children to be guilty." Da, 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 da. They want to, well, them to feel guilt and shame our children for 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 ills they weren't even alive for. No, 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 no. Okay, this is the issue. This is the key issue right there. That right there is the issue, right? So you're telling me that you can't learn uh, that white people can't learn about slavery because it might make them feel guilty. Are you serious? Do you understand how? So you want history to be erased? That's what you're saying. You want history to be erased? Okay. Yeah, that that's never that's that's always gone down well. Remove remove erasing history is always important. Okay, now we're not going to teach. We can't teach our kids everything. Okay, we can't teach the youth everything um, in history. Okay, but centering is, is an important word here because I I've said this several times. The only shit I I remember learning in history is World War Two and the royal family. Both of which, um, in terms of heroes, in terms of noble figures, are majority white. Now, in the world wars and in a lot of war, if you wanted to learn about war, there's plenty of, uh, you know, non-white people you can think of, right? Shaka Zulu, for one example, right? Go learn about Shaka Zulu. And if you want, show them Zulu. If you really want to do that, show them Zulu. I'll give that to you. The, the, whoever says uh, this fictional straw man I'm I'm creating right here, uh, this, this uh, straw man reactionary I'm making up, go go show him Zulu. That's go for it. I'll give you a pass to show you Zulu, right? Big on Michael Caine, right? Go show them that um, because this just because you know I I don't know if it's completely factual, but I know the battle happened, so sure I'll give you it, right? It's it's fine. I'll give you that, but the centering is detrimental because there's people like me who are non-white that have had to seek black history, South Asian history, all of that. We had to do that ourselves. Why do we have to do that ourselves? Why are we force-fed, white-centered, again, keyword, centered, why are we centered these things? Now, obviously, you can judge it by population. Obviously, more white people in the UK, etc., etc., etc. Right? But the numbers are changing. Let's be real. the the uh, The census has um, recently dropped. Um, it was they've only done population so far, and I'm waiting for those race numbers. I can't wait. I'm wait. I'm wait. I'm raring to go for those race numbers. Right? It excites me really oddly. Um, but anyway, the last point I wanted to make, going back to the root that whiteness is. Okay. So when you when you're talking about whiteness, anybody can perpetuate that, such as Rishi Sunak, such as Kemi Badnock. Regardless of skin color, anybody can uphold whiteness. Okay, think about it. Anybody can uphold it because you're in because we're just naturally in a system uh, when it comes to entertainment. Uh, when it comes to beauty standards, when it comes to education, the example I just gave, right, in terms of, you know, a very personal one, World War II and the royal family. World War II, royal family, right? That's all I was taught in history. Beauty standards, again, in Western, in the Western world, is so ingrained, you know, and it's, and it's everywhere. India, okay? If you're dark-skinned in India, if you're dark-skinned in some places in Africa, you are told that dark skin is bad, and you fought, and and there's women, and I'm sure there's men as well that bleach their skin. Okay, it's a, a centered in whiteness. All of that is centered in whiteness, and it's the, and the fact that India still goes through it when India's been independent for what hundred or so years now. I, I forget how long it's been, but it's been a while. And they're still indoctrinated in that, in whiteness, and that's the that's the that's the ill that we that's the social ill that we all have, especially in the Western world. I get populations a thing, right? But 
having everything being centered around white people is detrimental to all of us because we don't learn about things that are well for one thing the things that are different um but you know what i mean just uh go think about it in terms of food do you want to have whatever is considered british food for the rest of your life no you'd okay let me remove let me white let me center everything in the same way um the british education system uh, centers history classes around white people okay let me do that for um let me do that for food so you get no curry you get no italian food you get no spanish food you get no uh, chinese food none of that all you get is fish and chips for the rest of your life are you good with that no why why are you why because you, we're centered in whiteness let's go for it do you see the problem hopefully you do um, you know, I could spend an hour talking about this. I really could, um, but I'll leave it there. And um, yeah, this is a very important um, thing I wanted to talk about, and I'm very surprised it's taken me this long to talk about it. I probably have before, but just not in this uh, explicit way. Um, but I'm glad I did. Sooner is always better than later. So let's talk about politics and um, you know I mentioned obviously Sunak um, uh, being one of the finalists uh, next to Liz Truss um, and stuff like that but fuck all that let's talk about how they fucked up the economy funny enough since Rishi Sunak was Chancellor of the Exchequer for two years funny how that works eh but this is a long term view of it um, from what I found uh, from what I've uh, got here so this is via Open Democracy um, this is by uh, Laurie McFarlane and it's called The Conservatives Broke the UK Economy and Don't Know How to Fix It. And um, I feel like this is a very broad, uh, broad, uh, broad church, I guess, in, um, and a very zoomed out look at how they fucked up, to be honest. Because obviously it's been 12 years, nearly 13 now. And um, yeah, you know, it's all them now. It's all them. They can't. The fact that <laughs> I, I, I wasn't watching the debates because why would the fuck could I do that um but I did see a few quotes um saying you know of how they they basically spent two debates self-reporting themselves and it's just hilarious they just spent 12 uh they spent two leadership debates on tv self-reporting saying oh the economy's in the bin why is that I wonder who's in charge who's in charge of the treasury in the past two years Mm, who was that i wonder anyway let's jump right into this because this is this is interesting of course i don't want to talk about the leadership i want to talk about the problems that they cause consistently and have caused consistently um i'm not even talking about the infrastructure problem which is just coming through the climate crisis the fact that you know we can't uh, train lines had to, you know, kind of uh, limit their service because of in- infrastructure. We don't ha- our homes ain't are not built for the winter, are not built for wind, and are not built for the heat. So we're fucked regardless. In, in the words of Sean Connery in The Rock, we're fucked either way. Anyway, let's jump right into this. The campaign to replace Boris Johnson as UK Prime Minister kicked in full gear this week. First out of blocks is former Chancellor Rishi Sunak, who is currently the bookie's favourite to win the race. In a slick video released on social media, uh, Sunak pledged to, quote, restore trust and rebuild the economy and reunite the country, unquote. The choice of words was curious. After all, the party he seeks to lead has been running the country since 2010, and he has been personally responsible for managing the economy for the past three years. If the UK economy is broken then it is Sunak and his pie that are responsible, and broken it is. The period of Conservative reign since 2010 has con- coincided with one of the bleakest periods in UK economic history. Following the global financial crisis that began in 2008, real wages, wages after inflation is taken into account, suffered their longest sustained decline on record. Today, real average earnings are lower than they were in 2008. And the Office for Budget Responsibility predicts that they will still be below pre-financial crisis levels at the end of 2026. The Bank of England recently warned that UK households are now facing, quote, the biggest fall in living standards since comparable records began, unquote. 
to experience two consecutive lost decades in a row is unprecedented in modern history. This stagnant wage growth has been compounded by the steady erosion of the welfare state. Before the COVID-19 pandemic hit, real incomes for the lowest income households were no higher than uh, in 2001-2002, thanks to uh, years of sustained welfare cuts. The result is that poverty, which had been declining steadily in the preceding decades, increased sharply, particularly among households with children. The number of emergency food parcels distributed by food banks has soared by an almost unbelievable 6,000% since 2009 10, increasing from around 40,000 to 2.5 million in 2019 20. The squeeze on living standards has been exacerbated by an intensifying housing crisis, which has been actively fueled by successive Conservative governments. House prices across the UK have soared by 167% since 2010, far outstripping wage growth and pushing home ownership even further out of reach for millions. Rents in the private rented sector, meanwhile, have increased by 126%. Perhaps the cruelest aspect of the escalating housing crisis has been the surge in rough sleeping, which nearly trebled in England during the Conservatives' first seven years in power. At the same time, public services has, have been steadily eroded. The NHS waiting lists have recently reached record highs, while education budgets have been slashed by 10%. Countless libraries, public parks, sports facilities, museums, youth clubs and children's centres have been shut down. For every £100 that went on public services in 2010, only £86 in real terms was spent in 2020. The period of Conservative reign has been particularly grueling for young people. Following the tripling of English tuition fees in 2012, the average amount of student debt has soared by nearly 3,000%. In 2010, the average student in England graduated with £17,000 of debt. Today, the figure is 45000 Oh gosh, and mine's right in the middle. Uh, recent increases in national insurance mean that graduates paying the basic rate of income tax face a marginal tax rate of 50%, meaning that half of any pay increases will be deducted in tax and student loan payments. Not everyone has been feeling the pinch, however. Homeowners and landlords have seen their wealth soar, thanks to surging house prices and rents, and the state, and the state pension has been protected thanks to the triple lock that was introduced in 2010. Do you know why? Do you know why? I'm going to tell you why. Because those are the... And, you know, my mum's included in this, right? So, you know, it is what it is. But it's that age group. It's that age group. If, you, if you've been the triple lock, watch how many people of my mum's age don't vote Tory. Just think... just it, That's legit. It's hypothetical. It's locked in. But that's the only reason why the triple lock stayed there. That's the only reason why it stayed put. Because they know people of that age need that shit. And need that shit desperately. And that is the only reason some people, whether they whether they know it or not, it's subconscious, right? Because you don't, they're not going to actively go, oh, they, 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 they didn't remove the triple lock, so therefore I'm voting Tory. No. But, it, but if, fucking watch it, remove it and see what happens. Watch it and see how many of them pipe up. Trust me. Anyway. Uh, triple lock 2010. Uh, meanwhile, the US, uh, wealth of the UK's 10 richest people has increased by more than 250%. Oh, that's nice. Increasing from 70 billion in 2010 to 182 billion this year. This is no accident. Homeowners, pensioners, and the wealthy. What did I just say? Homeowners, pensioners, and the wealthy are the Tory party's core voter constituencies. But for almost everyone else, Economic life has become considerably more difficult since the Conservatives came to power. What the fuck did I just say? What the f- I, fu- I haven't read this whole article fully, right? I, I, I read the first couple of paragraphs. I was like, this is clean. I'm going to read it. I didn't read this far. So that's facts. I fuck- fucking called it. Anyway, one might argue that the above metrics do not accurately capture what the Conservatives set out to achieve. And this is true. Successive conservative governments have prioritised macroeconomic targets such as increasing economic growth, raising productivity, reducing the public debt, controlling inflation and boosting exports above broader socio-economic goals. But even using these metrics as a benchmark, the party's record in government is one of repeated failure. Since 2010, economic growth has lagged behind other major advanced economies, productivity has stalled and the national debt has more than doubled, increasing by more than $1 trillion. Today, uh, inflation is 9%. Uh, the highest it has been in 40 years, and the UK's trade performance recently fell to its worst level 
since records began. In other words, Tory record on the economy has been one of repeated failure, whichever way you look at it. Some might contend that this is the this is partly because the Conservatives' period in government has been marred by a series of unprecedented crises, including the fallout from the global financial crisis, COVID-19 pandemic, and a global energy crisis. But in every case... <laughs> That's so hilarious. I, I, know, I know why. They're, I know they're going to tee it up for something, for something else, but it is just so funny how that was worded. Like, you know, that's probably like half the time. Uh, come on, man. Anyway, I know they, they're probably going to come with some heat, but this is, this is hilarious how that was, uh, how that was worded. Anyway, but in every case, the party has foisted a series of self-inflicted wounds, here we go, on the country that was entirely avoidable. Austerity imposed by the Conservative-led government after the global financial crisis stifled productivity, held down wages and suffocated growth, leading some of its even, uh, some of even its most vocal advocates to acknowledge that it was a mistake. The UK's bungled response to the pandemic resulted in one of the world's highest death tolls and one of the slowest economic recoveries. The energy crisis currently engulfing country has its root in decades of misguided energy policy, and virtually all of the UK's economic problems have been made worse by a crisis that is entirely of the Tory party's own making. A hard exit rammed through Parliament at Boris Johnson's behest. Do any of the Tory leadership candidates have a plan for dealing with the worst, uh, with the UK's economic wo- woes? Based on the campaign to date, the response is emphatic: no. So far, the leadership candidates have engaged in a race to the bottom on tax cuts. Instead of presenting a serious plan for fixing the US, uh, okay, why does I say US? UK's broken economy, this blind faith in tax cuts as a route to prosperity has no empirical basis in reality and will almost certainly make the UK's econ- economic woes worse, not better. In reality, these pledges are a naked attempt to court the 200,000 Tory members who are overwhelmingly old, white, wealthy men living in the south of England that will ultimately select the next Prime Minister. The lack of serious policy debate in the campaign is symptomatic of a party that has run out of ideas fixing the UK economy and run out of road as a credible party of government. Oh, fucking right, they did. <laughs> they run out of that fucking road. Trust me on that. That's fucking facts. If I've ever seen it, um, but yeah, man, I I don't know what I don't know how else to, um, I don't know how else to big that up. Um, that's all facts. Um, and uh, yeah, man, I I I just I, I really don't get it. I don't get how people can justify voting Tory now. I I just don't get it. Like you are different. It's a different. It's different levels now. It really is. Like after David Cameron, I've just never understood it. I've never understood it. Why? You, why people in the UK just decide to do it? Um, I just it just doesn't make sense to me. Even the poorest, the most work working class as well. Some of them are voted Tory, and I just don't get it. I really don't. What just because you don't know what Keir Starmer, Keir Starmer looks like? I don't. Like, who, don't what? Do you watch the news? No. Then why do you care? Who gives a fuck? I don't care. I don't care if he's invisible. Like, it really doesn't matter. And by the way, Labour Party can go fuck yourself as well, by the way, just, you know, for more recent issues that I can't be asked to raise. But yeah, you know, fuck. Just not the Tory party, bro. That's all it is. Just not the Tory party. That's all I want. Not the Tory party. And we'll move on from there. That's it. That's, it. that's, all, I, that's all I want. Simple. Just no more Tory party. Please. I beg of you all. Not No more Tory. Just please. None, 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 never again. Please, please stop. Please, I beg you. So I hop into work, and um, I feel like this, uh, you know, connects to a lot of people, um, especially you know freelancers, people in creative industries. But you know, I feel like you don't have to be in those camps to understand this. Um, this is this is hilarious. I just find it funny. It's very well put together. Um, great visuals as well. So go people for yourself. Um, so this is uh, by Danielle Pender uh, via It's Nice That, uh, and it's called uh, Client Red Flags. How to spot the warning signs of a toxic creative relationship. Uh, and it's great. This is, this is amazing. I love it. We've all been there. You get a call or email from a potential client interested in working with you. Yes, you're excited. You're already thinking of the relevant ideas you can bring to life and the team you might work with. You're cycling, 
eyeing up, sorry, I, I, I saw C, not E, apparently. Uh, you're eyeing up a, the Q2 budget hole uh, the fee would fill uh, or the long-term contract the work might lead to. The first meeting goes well. Everyone is on their best behavior. You're all on a high and kind of in love with each other. And then dot, 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 something happens. You broach fees, processes, payment terms, teams, and deadlines that don't quite seem quite right to you. And then in the distance, you see the hazy outline of a red flag slowly rising to half, then full mast. You try to ignore it, but you've been here before. <laughs> and you know what it spells. Creative, financial, or spiritual disaster. Perhaps you learned the hard way. Perhaps in the past you noticed something that didn't sit right. You saw the red flag flutching in the distance, but you ignored your intuition and thought, meh, it won't be that bad. Or maybe you didn't see the red flag until you were enveloped in, all the, in the all-consuming quagmire of a disastrous client situation. Because, just as in personal relationships, it's often not the individual red flag incident that is the problem. It is the deeper toxic processes or culture that it represents that is the issue. And it should be viewed as a warning to, uh, a warning to protect your time, energy and cash flow. Well, mop that brow, relax that jaw and fear no more. We're here to help you identify those tricky client red flags. We've put together a guide on what to look out for when you're working with clients in the hope that this guide will help you avoid some of the red flags situation others have experienced in the past. Um, this is with submissions from other people, by the way. Um, there's a asterisk there, so that's why. Um, also, it's worth noting that this is in a name and, sh name and shame session. session. Uh, name and shame session. There you go. Clients aren't the enemy creative process is never linear and you're often in the trenches together fighting fires and making things happen any way you can i've worked with a lot of brilliant clients some of whom have become friends so it isn't the client who is the problem per se but that said there are some behaviors and practices that stand out and that act as a warning sign of where things could go wrong if not handled very mindfully so for john reader but tread carefully and remember if you see a red flag fluttering in the distance ignore it at your peril first one's pitches the question of unpaid pitches in the creative industry has been debated for a number of years and at this stage, if a company is asking you to take part in an unpaid pitch, I'd say this is a classic red flag. In an age where studios and individuals can showcase their past work beautifully across various platforms, clients can easily get a flavour and insight into your work, processes and approach and aesthetic. If they ask for specific responses to set brief or request your expertise and time in relation to their product or service, they should allocate a budget to compensate. This lazy and outdated practice speaks to a lack of respect for your time and creative ideas. Walk away. Next one's team. The team you meet at the beginning of a project represent the wider company your work will front uh, once it's out in the world. If that team is all male or white, the flag goes up. What kind of company culture has directed the recruiting process that resulted in the monoculture team sitting before you? What biases have gone unchecked? What blinkered decisions are being made within those teams uh, and at the expense of who? It, uh, if it's all pale and all male, it's stale. <laughs> I love that. That's great wording. Uh, another red flag when it comes to teams is the dreaded, we're one big family. <laughs> In the words of a tweet by at Pollen196, if, if a job hire you and say, welcome to the family, you about to encounter multiple human rights violations. <laughs> Oh, fucking hell. That's great. That's great. I love it. Next one is communication. Communication is key when it comes to client red flags. In an age when access to each other is blown open, this can be tricky to navigate. The warning signs can be raised at either end of the spectrum. Either too much or not enough depend heavily on what you're personally comfortable with, but let's be honest, no one enjoys waking up to a stream of early morning WhatsApps from a client demanding last-minute changes to something they've already signed off. Likewise, no one enjoys sitting back in back-to-back -back calls, jumping on a quick call, it's never quick, or nor the classic call that uh, uh, could have been an email. There's also zero enjoyment in being contacted across many different platforms. It creates confusion and makes keeping track of feedback or progress very difficult, um, especially for neurodivergent people. It could also mean that receipts are lost, making it hard to refer back to what was agreed or said uh, when you need to. Any of these excessive expectations around communications classify as red flags. It signals a lack of respect for your time and breakdown of healthy boundaries and poor time management on the client's part and should be managed with extreme caution. Um, and, uh, oh, you know what? I was just about to say ghosting, but guess what's the next one? 
Oh gosh. Okay. Fuck me. I hate ghosting. Ghosting is probably my, my my least favorite, or my most hated. Actually, there you go. I say that. In 2022, the phenomenon of ghosting isn't a reserve of fuck boys and girls who don't wash their sheets often enough. The practice of people cutting off communication whilst giving zero explanation has also found its way into the professional world. And in this instance, I say professional in the very loosest sense of the word. Facts. Fucking facts, honestly. Like, ghost me, fine. Do you. But fuck me, come back at, come back at me asking for work. That shit's like, that price is doubling. Be- believe that one is doubling and two i'm getting that r- that shit written down in a contract that's the, that's all that's it that's facts trust me on that that's the only way it's getting passed double that fee and give me a contract i want to i want exact detail on what is what, what needs to be doing and I, what i want from you as well like honestly in terms of people signing off for shit like pisses me off anyway why do i have to hit you up so i can get this shit signed off like you should be proactive anyway in researching this feature i spoke to at least five people who said this is one of the main client red flags facts this familiar story goes uh, that you have a lot of initial contact with a potential client typically calls or zooms they're interested in how you can work together and ask for a deck to outline how you might take this forward a selection of top line ideas is usually a suggestion so you put together a deck everyone loves a deck outlining some info on you or your uh, or you or your company, you develop some top line ideas, supply a budget, timeline, suggest the next steps. Then you send it off to the client and wait. Dot, dot, dot. The next stage involves sending as many checking in, circling back, moving forward emails as you can stomach before accepting the dormant anonymous aardvark in your Google Slides presentation just isn't going to respond. There might be a number of reasons for this. They might have found your ideas lacking, they might be super busy, or they might be have, might have been sacked. The only acceptable reason. Some may eventually circle back around full of apologies with explanations of being slammed and quote having no budget at this point unquote but ultimately it comes down to a major red flag behavior and it's time to move on. Briefing feedback input. The briefing feedback input loop can also be a fertile ground for the biggest juiciest red flags you've ever seen. Let's start at the beginning, the brief. There isn't an industry standard when it comes to a briefing. And they can vary wildly from a couple of sentences to a 40-page PDF with a detailed appendix. Red flags sprout up in my mind whenever there are pages of someone else's work. And all the client wants you to do is replicate and repeat. No, why hire that person uh, whose work you want to rip off so badly? At this stage, it can also become very apparent which clients have a handle on reality and which ones don't. Bad briefs can tell you whether a client knows what they want and if they understand their products or audience. If they don't, their expectations won't align with the results of any work you, cr- you create and you'll be one to blame. Or they'll change their mind halfway through the project for a, and for a couple of painful weeks, months, your life will become very shit indeed. Red flag. Another bad, uh, banger is anytime someone says, quote, our founder likes to be very involved, unquote, which means you're about to come into contact with someone who likes to sift through ideas on a microbial level. <laughs> And conversely, any feedback as vague and asinine as this is pretty. <laughs> Neon red flags throughout my brain as does descendants. Can we just make a few quick changes? <laughs> oh, this is so painful. Oh, gosh, this is horrible to read. <laughs> it's hilarious, though, because it's facts. It's so hilarious. Oh, my gosh. Oh, gosh. All right. All right, let's, let's soldier on. Uh, when the round of work has already been signed off. Oh, God, money. <laughs> <laughs> oh, money, 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 money. For the love of money. Shout to the OJs. Money is a fraught area where red flags appear more often than 18 whole golf course at Mar-a-Lago. Across each stage from negotiating fees and budgets uh, to the money finally hitting your account, the terrain is rocky. Some of the big hitter money red flags include the now iconic, there's no budget for this, but a lot of people see it. (laughs) Exposure. Fuck you. Oh, god damn. God fucking damn. Oh, gosh. I haven't experienced that before, but I just know that'll fuck me off. Oh, there's the other Stone Cold classic quote. The budget has been cut, but the ambition for the project remains the same, unquote. This message, the message is different, uh, but the meaning is the same. You're about to get financially shafted. 
Oh, gosh. A roundup of other financial red flags includes payment terms that are anything longer than 30 days, red flag, clients who don't pay uh, 50% of production ahead of a job, red flag, trying to save on budget not by not hiring a full team, such as a stylist, set designer, or hand model, because Marion Accounts has lovely hands, red flag. Another more low-key but equally tedious red flag involves fi- uh, filling out an insane amount of paperwork just to be processed on the client's payment system. This always raises alarms as it means multiple departments are involved and the chances of your details remaining incomplete on the system are very high. I'd, I'd highly recommend following up with all parties and asking for confirmation that you're fully upda- uploaded onto their payment system as soon as possible. Lastly, anyone who sends out a brief or project outline including deadlines and next steps without mentioning fees or budget immediately raises a red flag in my mind. This usually means that going to circle back to the first point in the section that there's no budget. <laughs> oh, manners. Oh gosh, we got more. We got more manners. Okay, right. Uh, I don't know if the increase in digital communication over physical meetings has led to a decrease in general manners, or if some clients just fall into a kind of warped master-servant mentality the minute they write brand manager into their email signature. But something is amiss, and I encourage you all to watch out for subtle but very real red flags associated with the lack of basic manners. Often the erosion of manners happens over time when a client begins to feel the dreaded I'm paying for this vibe, uh, taking over their being. Uh, <laughs> I'm paying for this. Uh, perhaps there have been some creative differences. Maybe production has fallen behind schedule or a desired venue talent supplier isn't available. Tension arises and nerves are frayed. However, no matter how far the project is perceived to be veering off course, there is no excuse for a lack of manners. If a client cannot say please and thank you or speak in a civil manner, when things get complicated, then it's a reg- red flag from me. Uh, asking for a rationale document on what? <laughs> oh gosh, okay. Uh, asking for a rationale document on what toilet roll the client should use in a new facility. Uh, these are just like random ones as well, by the way. Requesting a file with a fifteen-minute window as the client was boarding a flight to the Bahamas. Oh my gosh, what? <laughs> Twelve-hour day is standard, often on shoots. Uh, when they describe anything as sexy. Any company that puts out, we want to celebrate all the lovely ladies on IWD messaging. And they want everyone to know about the office dog. That obviously stink, absolutely stinks. Uh, clients asking for raw files or extra images for free. Contracts are impenetrable and use different language to claim global rights of your work forever. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's definitely a, some red flags. Okay. So, yeah, that's the entire thing. And um, that's just that just made me laugh, honestly. It's the... It's the good old laugh to stop you from crying kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, man, even with, um, you know, it doesn't have to be creative work, I feel. I feel like that some of those are very transferable, especially, you know, the manners that part of it and just, um, you know, just respect element, you know what I mean? Uh, regardless of where you are in the, you know, quote-unquote hierarchy, just to, you know, we're all humans at the end of the day, just stop treating people like shit, simple as, you know what I mean? And just like, you know, do you want do you want to be, if you're in my shoes? Would you, and that's the thing, that's the, that's the thing, isn't it? They don't. They can't see in other people's shoes. That's all it is most of the time. They just can't see in other people's shoes. And that when, when you ask them, you know, put yourself in my shoes. Do you think this is fine? I fucking they, they they get discombobulated on on a different level. So anyway, yeah, just um, eye out for red flags, always and forever. we finish with an article that I think ties everything together I think it ties the entire episode together um, it is simply called How to Admit You're Wrong um, this is written by Addy Volp uh, of Vox Let's jump right in because I mean I can t- I, I know I, I, I feel like I can say when I'm wrong um, but yeah I, I just feel like a lot of people just haven't got the ability uh, Julia Strand was confident in her scientific findings when they were published in 2018 Strand's research showed that when a circular beacon of light was present, uh, present in a noisy setting, people expanded, expended less energy listening to their conversation partner and responded quicker than without the light. The feedback was positive and Strand 
an associate professor of psychology at Carleton College, Carleton College, Carleton, Carleton uh, College in Northfield, Minnesota, had received grant funding to continue further re- her research. Some months later, however, Strand was unable to replicate her results. In fact, she found the opposite to be true, that light forced people to think harder. Strand had crossed her T's, dotted her I's, and showed her work, and she and still she was wrong. Quote, the bottom, of, uh, the bottom dropped out of my stomach, Strand says. It was terrible to realise that I had not just made a mistake, but published a mistake. Uh, unquote. Being wrong is an unavoidable aspect of the human condition. Defining what constitutes wrong, uh, however, can get messy. People can be wrong about many, uh, any multitude of things, from misremembering, mis- misremembering there you go, the name of a 90s pop song to incorrectly casting blame to, uh, onto a friend during a heated argument. Mistakes happen on scales big and small, topics tangible and moral or ethical. In the 2010 book Being Wrong Adventures in the Margin of Error, author Catherine Schultz uh, loosely defines being wrong, quote, as a deviation from external reality or an internal upheaval in what we believe, unquote, with the caveat that wrongness is too vast to fit neatly into either category. Regardless of its definition, people are often afraid to experience it or hesitant to admit it. From a young age, society, society God, I don't know why I staggered that, society, instills in children the message of, quote, it's wrong to hit your sister, unquote, and it's right to say please and thank you. As time goes on, this binary creates, uh, quote, creates this level of perfectionism where it's really hard to be wrong because it feels like your whole person is inherently wrong, unquote, uh, says licensed marriage and family therapist Mo Ari Brown. God, that, that just sounds... One that, that marriage and family therapist just sounds like a very stressful job. I don't know if I can be paid to do, do that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? Just to listen to people. Ugh, I don't know. Um, it, but that's why I don't do phone in heart. Uh, it just puts these value-based labels on every single thing that we're doing. Uh, in recent years, an entire cottage industry has emerged, devoted to revisiting history in an effort to point out past wrongdoing, showcasing just how much society likes to be right and castigate uh, those who were not. For Strand, much of her anxiety about her research era centred around not having a model about how to own up to mistakes. However, accepting we're capable of being wrong and moving on from blunders relatively unscathed can provide uh, solace for society's squeamish about slip-ups. Uh, as Schultz writes, quote, it does feel like uh, something, it does feel like something to be wrong. Uh, it feels like being right. Only after a light bulb moment, like Strand's after uh, examining her past research, are we enlightened to the error of our ways. What prevents us from realizing our wrongness is the phys- psychological theory of cognitive dissonance, says Adam Fetterman, assistant professor and director of, pers- of the Personality, Emotion and Social Cognition Lab. Cognitive dissonance is when two beliefs or behaviors conflict or when a person's actions contradict their beliefs. Examples include smoking, despite knowing the health risks, or turning a lie, despite considering yourself an honest person, um, or watching the World Cup, considering that 6,500 6, uh, people plus died uh, to make it. Uh, this kind of conflict usually results in anxiety or feelings of uncertainty. The Qatar thing was my, me, by the way, that was me talking. Uh, quote, we're highly motivated to reduce our uncertainty, Fetterman says. Oftentimes, the most common way that people get rid of it is by rejecting the new information or creating a new cognition that basically get, gets rid of it. Not too often do we actually change our thoughts or our behaviours in order to align with the new information, unquote. Uh, this can look like only taking in information that confirms already held beliefs, justifying the belief, or denying anything that contradicts their beliefs. Another quote, the motivation to reduce that dissonance leads us to even double down or to come back even stronger with our beliefs, Fetterman says. And there's a ton of people in the media and uh, the people that participate in the media uh, that uh, are very uh, like this, (coughs) politicians. Uh, When we err, as in error, by the way, I did actually say um, uh, we we might risk uh, social ostracism. Excuse me, or embarrassment. As social beings, we're constantly looking for acceptance within groups. Being wrong about something opens us up to criticism from members of those groups. Quote, what I've seen in my own research and with other people's research on the topic of being wrong is that the number one concern people have is that they're going to be embarrassed or that people are going to think they're stupid, Vetman says. Admitting that you're wrong even to yourself. You have this fear that you're going to be rejected by a fellow human, unquote. Its irony is how wrong we are. 
about the perception of being wrong. Fetterman's research shows admitting wrongness actually improves our reputation. By owning up to our errors, others see us as friendlier, more agreeable. In his lab, Fetterman is studying whether knowing the, the, the reputa- reputational impacts of admitting wrongness will determine whether people will be more willing to admit they're wrong in the future. Quote, so we're trying to stu- subtly teach people about our own research and then seeing if that affects whether or not they'll admit they're wrong in a different situation, he says. Acknowledging errors can happen as quickly as realising we tapped the wrong person on the shoulder and events of a years-long process of slowly determining... Determining... Determining? Determine. Yeah, determining. Uh, how we previously saw the world was wrong. Growing up, Anna Chinaro- Chironova, um had a specific be- set of beliefs. Specific bet. Uh, quote, I thought poor people were lazy and the government was full of... A- <laughs> Full of a bunch of socialist bureaucrats sitting around trying to play Robin Hood with my money, she says. Uh, when she graduated from college, the recession was at its peak. Cheronova worked three jobs, none of which offered health insurance, rented an apartment with roommates and made instant ramen stretch to uh, last two meals. I learned pretty quickly that sometimes, no matter how hard you work, there are systemic failures working to keep you down. Uh, Cheronova, who now runs her own video productions company, says. Good for her. Sometimes we form new beliefs that replace old ones, like Chironova, or we're alerted to signals pointing out our wrongness, like a two-hour road trip turning into a seven-hour one thanks to a few wrong turns. Just a systematic uh, presentation of evidence defying our beliefs can help move the needle towards a wake-up call, Fetman says. Quote, over time, uh, fact after fact after fact will start to erode uh, people's beliefs away, unquote. Why does that happen for the Tories, by the way? Fact after fact after fact of them being shit houses and we're still and they're still here. I'm wondering where in that equation do they, um, you know, fuck off. Anyway, everything comes back to the Tories. I with uh, to come to these realizations, Brown says we have to be open to the fact that we're capable of making errors and setting our ego aside to accept we live in a world where we faltered or have changed our minds in some way. In fact, Fetterman says just accept our own mistakes can allow us to be more open to being wrong. It's like failure, you know, it's, just, it's very similar to failure. When you fail a lot, you start to not feel it as much, you know. When a, when you're a kid and you fail for, like, you know, the first few times, you start crying, you're like... Ugh. And even when, a, you know, when you've experienced failure and you're trying desperately not to, and you're in that, and you're in that spot where you're just like... <laughs> you know what I mean? Just, just, just fucking stewing, like, and you're, just, you're just fucking, like, angry and sad at the same time. Gosh, I hate those feelings. Anyway. It's natural to get defensive or provide excuses for why you were wrong. But, quote, these strategies for deflecting responsibility for our errors stand in the way of a better, more productive relationship to wrongness, Schultz writes. Uh, to admit erroneousness, erroneous, erroneousness, that's it, that's the word, erroneousness, without excuse to simply state, I was wrong, is a skill, Brown says, quote, it probably is going to come out more as an explanation of why they were d- doing what they were doing, Brown says. But with time and practice, we can come to recognize our mistakes without explaining them. The key is to consistently own up to our mistakes as soon as we realize we are wrong. The negative ways we view ourselves in the midst of an admitting wrongness can be the biggest barriers move- to moving forward. Quote, we stand in our uh, own way more than anyone else with shame and regret and fear, Brown says. Do we forgive ourselves for not getting it right? Sometimes we can beat up ourselves worse than anyone else. And can we realize that it needed that that need to be right? Can we allow for the fact that we had to apologize? Unquote. Then, if an apology is necessary, Brown says to first acknowledge the wrongdoing and then apologize without shame by saying, "I know I said hurtful things to you during our argument. I was wrong, and I apologize." Evan Cruz was so steadfastly dedicated to making his blog a success that he asked his mother, who he lives with, to financially support him, paying for his living expenses and training uh, while he built his platform. Instead, his mother told him to get a job. <laughs> Tensions came to a head last October when he accused her of not supporting his goals. Quote, she got very angry at me about it and imposed living expenses for what seemed to be uh, just to show me a lesson of appreciation, Cruz says. After a few days, Cruz says he began to see things from his mum's perspective. Quote, I can see why she doesn't want to support my blog ventures, considering that I haven't ge- uh, generated a profit yet. Any parent would not uh, not support that. He told his mother he was wrong. She told him to show it in his actions. Cruz got a full-time job as civil engineer at the Florida Department of Transportation and picked up the sack around the house. He says the relationship has since improved. 
how the fuck you a blogger, but you got a job as a civil engineer? Like, what, what were your qualifications, bro? I feel like you could have done that in the first place and just kept it moving and do the blog on the side or something. Like, if, you, if, you, if you're good enough... To, what, I don't... I, I mean, I will say I don't really know what a civil engineer does, but it sounds technical. Um, but anyway, I might be wrong. Haha, <laughs> get it? Uh, normalizing wrongness can help people more easily come to realizations of their own fallibility. Uh, yes, that's how you say it. Uh, Fetterman is studying what happens when we see someone else admit they're wrong, especially if they're in a position of power, like a politician, influencer, or professor. If we see people own up to mistakes and move on from them, it may be that we're more likely to admit our fault uh, ourselves. When Strand informed her co-authors, uh, the editor of the scientific journal where the study was published, the granting agency, and the committee in reviewing her tenure of her mistake, uh, she was real relieved that she didn't lose her grant and she still got tenure. Quote, my fears about how terrible the consequences of this could have been didn't play out, she says. Seeing that it could be useful uh, for other people because if you've done something wrong and you haven't seen anyone anyone else do that before, it's very easy to assume that the consequences are going to be terrible. Quote, in an effort to normalize mistakes in scientific research, Strand published an uh, account of her experience and was blown away by the response. Quote, I have been contacted by about a dozen people a dozen other people who have found mistakes in their own work and said this actually was really useful for me in figuring out how to deal with this and inspired me to do the right thing, I quote. Despite uh, the resistance towards it, wrongness can be cause for celebration. When we own up to the fact that our snide remarks hurt our partner, we can revel in having a productive conversation about it and thus becoming closer. Getting a question wrong in class presents an opportunity to learn and covering a mistake in your work allows you to grow. Quote, uh, here is an opportunity for me to learn something, Strand says. Here's an opportunity for me to fix something. And yeah, man, that's, uh, that's, that's what's up. That is what's up. And I feel, but the issue there is, um, you know, what if people just never, never figure out that they're wrong? You know what I mean? Like, and, and never have to, um, you know, get consequences for the shit they have done. I think you know what I'm talking about. And I'll leave it there. Ladies and gentlemen, from the Fifth and Podcast Network, I have a child saying this has been most good. Injury music has been too much by Vanilla. Thanks to Chill Music for the ability to use the track. You can find both of their links in the full show notes. Thanks to Nappy High for the ability to use Charismatic for the interlude. You can also find his link in the full show notes. And with that said, I hope you all have a good week. I hope you're a bit cooler this time. I should always try and do the same. But until the next time, take it easy. Ladies and gentlemen.